On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about COVID. Shocker, right? We never talk about COVID. No one talks about it. And of course we do. But here's the thing. For a long time, you would be considered a tinfoil hat wearing person if you suggested that maybe COVID had not really come from a bat in the wet market, but came from a lab in China. That was conspiratorial and crazy. Well, except now the Wall Street Journal is reporting that may in fact be the case. Could it actually be? We'll talk about it. We're also going to talk about checkout in the grocery store. Do you go person or do you go self-checkout? Times are changing, we'll explain. And Don Robertson joins us to talk a little bit about whether or not Wayne Gretzky is going to be a good analyst on television. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. So for months and months and months, if you had suggested the origin of COVID was the lab in Wuhan, among many circles, maybe the broader populace, uh, you were a nut job. You were a conspiracy weirdo. You were crazy enough that Twitter would, and in some cases did, suspend your account for, for spreading misinformation. Well, maybe, maybe it's time for a little bit of a rethink here because on the weekend, the Wall Street Journal, the Wall Street Journal, uh, while citing an intelligence report, reported three researchers at that Wuhan lab were hospitalized with serious illnesses resembling COVID a month before China reported its first case of coronavirus. Now, China is, of course, denying this and saying that any suggestion that its lab workers got sick is just American propaganda. But if the Wall Street Journal feels that it's now credible enough to report on, maybe it is time that some real other questions need to be asked. Dr. Charles Burton is a senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonnell-Laurier Institute. He joins us now. Dr. Burton, thank you for your time today. Good evening, Scott. Uh, would we be at the point now that 60 Minutes has talked about this and now the Wall Street Journal is talking about this? Are we at a point now where this would maybe no longer be considered quite as wacky a theory? Yeah, I think so. I mean, particularly because, you know, this COVID-19 has now been a scourge for so long and there's no alternative uh, explanation that has come to light. So the idea that, you know, that a mistake was made in the lab, that the lab workers went to that wet market relatively nearby to to buy their fish and vegetables, and, and that's why it was spread there, certainly seems a lot more credible than the kind of ridiculous theories that the Chinese government comes up with, which is, you know, it came on packaging from seafood imported from abroad, or there was a lot of it in Italy, so it came from Italy, or... American soldiers brought it from from the United States to to the um, military games in world military games in in Wuhan in that uh, in that uh, fall of 2019. So, you know, Chinese are 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 highly defensive over this thing, which makes you feel that they know something that uh, that they're not prepared to tell us, and it really would have been much better if they'd manned up explained the source of the virus early on, as presumably the Chinese leadership knows, and then we could have taken appropriate action sooner to try and stem this thing, which is, of course, spread throughout the world and caused so many unnecessary mm. deaths. You sometimes wonder if the true, if the easy answer isn't the truth. We don't like necessarily the easy answer because it seems too easy sometimes, but I want to read you a quote on 60 Minutes a few weeks ago. There was a former National Security Council official who said this. This is his quote. 
we would have to ask the question, well, why in Wuhan? What, what Wuhan does have is China's level four virology institute, which probably has the world's largest collection of bat viruses, including bat coronaviruses. And again, Charles, I, you know, sometimes it seems logic is too easy almost, it, it, that, that Wuhan would happen to be the place where this would start in a wet market, where the lab that holds these viruses happens to be, it, it almost seems too easy. Yeah, I mean, you know, intuitively to me, as someone who's not a, an expert on virology, this makes the most sense, particularly in the, in the lack of any other explanation and the fact that the Chinese government have been so resistant to allowing the international community to come to Wuhan to do a, uh, an investigation. Presumably, you know, if the Chinese government didn't know what caused this thing, they would really like to know and would be welcoming any resources around the world that could that could assist in trying to come up with the source of the virus and thereby, you know, assist the world in in uh, stemming it and and ensuring that a similar event doesn't occur again. So, you know, there's just too many uh, things that make you feel suspicious, and the Chinese side clearly doesn't want any more investigation on the origin of COVID. They've, uh, you know, they've been particularly uh, um, virulent in their response to Australia, whose government suggested that we needed a proper independent scientifically-based investigation of the source of the virus, and China then started to ban all sorts of Australian exports into China, you know, a response which is really disproportionate to to um, what the global community is, is urging, which is simply, you know, tell us the truth, uh, open, up, uh, open up the information so that we can see what happened. And uh, I think it's because they knew it early on, and they, you know, they felt, they now feel that it's too late to, to man up and tell us what really happened. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know, as much as we like to think that we may be able to figure something out or we may be on to something, could this ever, ever be proven? Well, you know, clearly the Chinese government um, is highly resistant to the information coming out. I think that anybody who had knowledge of what really happened in that lab, if they were to release the information, um, you know, would suffer severe, severe sanctions under that regime. You know, it, it, I think probably the lab has been cleaned up like the mafia clean up a murder scene, you know, and it's unlikely that, that there are any remnants of evidence left there. But, uh, you know, your classical intelligence gathering may eventually lead to something, and, you know, eventually someone will, will have their conscience up and want to reveal it. I mean, there are many reasons why this is being suppressed. You know, it's possible that that lab was, in fact, involved in in bioweaponry development, you know, which would violate uh, United Nations um, um, agreements if, that, if, in fact, the Chinese were, were trying to have these kind of chemical biological weapons in their arsenal for potential future use. There are a lot of reasons why they, why they wouldn't want to spread the information and, you know, and then we have the Winnipeg connection with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where um, a very distinguished uh, a Canadian researcher of Chinese descent, uh, Chu uh, Xiangguo, um, had a connection with the Wuhan Institute, had been sending Ebola um, from Canada to that institute in collaborative research, and then under mysterious circumstances, 
had her security clearance um, removed and was escorted with all of her associated researchers from the facility. Well, you know, that's the kind of thing that I think Canadians would like to have more information on so we know exactly where we all stand in this in this tragedy of COVID-19. Does it hurt, though, that there was a World, Organ- World Health Organization investigative group that went over there and did an alleged investigation, but seems to have basically just taken the word of the Chinese by the looks of it. But the fact that they came back with a report and said, no, it's all good. No, nothing to see here. Does that hurt any efforts down the road, credibility-wise, believability-wise, even if we found something out? Because the Chinese would say, look, they did a report already and found and there was nothing wrong. Yeah, I mean, this is a concern. I mean, certainly the WHO team um, was not allowed to access the site until a long time after the uh, virus was rampant in Wuhan. You know, really, one would have expected that the that the uh, specialized researchers from around the world would have flown out there, you know, as soon as uh, we found out how serious this was. The Chinese government refused that access. And, you know, we know from some of the members of the team that the Chinese have not been forthcoming with providing them with all of the data that they that they really need to do a proper assessment of what went on in Wuhan when this virus started to spread. So I, I don't think that there's a lot of credibility um, to the UN's assertion, the UNWHO's assertion that, you know, it's very unlikely to have come out of the Institute for Virology. I think they just don't have enough information to be able to say. And that, you know, in itself causes one to feel... Uh, suspicious. And then the, you know, the, the concern of the influence of China over uh, UN agencies uh, by, you know, their ability to to um, mobilize support for the Chinese position among individuals and among states through the use of their, um, of their providing benefits uh, to uh, people who are in critical positions with regard to to dealing with these matters is another is another cause for concern and you know it's very hard to to root out um, because um, you know, people are not prepared to to um, be open and forthcoming about some benefits that they might have received from a foreign state to in effect look the other way. We only have a few min- or a minute or so left here, but what if it was true? What if it could be proven? Because, I mean, ultimately, even if you can prove it, what do you do with that? What would happen if it was ever proven that China hadn't been telling the truth exactly and this had come out of a lab and then it had spread to the entire world and it was their fault? Yeah, I mean, that, you know, that is, of course, the big question. You know, obviously, it would have enormous impact inside China and, and threaten the, the legitimacy of the rule of the Chinese Communist Party, which, you know, might be a good thing or might not. Um, in terms of accountability, the idea that China could pay compensation to uh, people who have, you know, wrongly lost loved ones or the enormous disruption to the global economy of the COVID-19, you know, it's not very likely. I think that if China had been honest early on about the sources of this thing, then, um, you know, we would have all been understanding. I mean, so a mistake was made in the lab. There were issues in in their control of these uh, level four labs, um, you know, they, they, they didn't manage it properly. Well, at least we'd know, you know, and I think on that basis, if the government of China had simply apologized, um, you know, that would have ended the matter. But now we have this situation of suspicion and, and this thing is, uh, as you say, going to be 
a, a blot on, on China's international reputation for a long time to come. Dr. Charles Burton, always appreciate your time. Thanks for taking a few minutes tonight. Good to speak with you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Have you done any grocery shopping lately? Which I guess is the only kind of shopping you're allowed to do these days. So let me ask the question again. Have you done any shopping lately? Well, if you have, the next question is, have you gone through a cashier and had a cashier ring through your purchases? Or have you done it yourself? Self-checkout. I'm betting based on what we're going to talk about next, I'm betting it is the latter because there are new numbers showing the percentage of people who are willing to do self-checkout during the pandemic has gone through the roof where once there was hesitancy, people now seem to be jumping completely on board with this idea. I want to bring in our good friend, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, the food professor, professor of food distribution and policy at, and director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. But as I say, the food professor, way easier to say, and probably sums it up really well, too. Uh, Sylvain, thanks for the time today. <laughs> How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing great. I'm, um, I'm looking at your numbers here, and they're fascinating numbers. I mean, you always come up with interesting stuff, but this, to me, I, I'm, I'll let you explain what the numbers are, but I don't think we often see behavioral changes happen in such huge quantities and so fast as we're seeing with this. Oh, absolutely. So uh, I think everyone has seen these uh, self-checkout lane. Uh, some uh, have used them uh, regularly. Others are looking at them saying, well, they're job killers. In fact, uh, just a few years ago in 2019, uh, there was a survey uh, suggesting that a little over 30% of Canadians actually were willing to use them, but not regularly. Many, many Canadians actually saw uh, self-checkout counters as job killers. Uh, I mean, people valued what cashiers were doing. They thought they played an important role. They humanized the whole exit process. Even though the exit uh, part of our grocery experience has always been mismanaged, uh, people appreciated the fact that you know, a human being basically greeted them at the end of, of the grocery experience. There was some bagging involved and, and stuff like that. And so people appreciated that. But I think the pandemic has, has changed a lot of things, including our will to interact with a human mm. being as we, were, as we are exiting the grocery store. So we actually ran a survey nationally recently uh, only to realize that uh, now for Canadians, um, if you ask them which option do you prefer, they're pretty much equal. Uh, they they like the cashier, but if the self-checkouts are available, they, they'll go for it. They'll actually go for a self-checkout basically because uh, there's less risks. And, of course, you can uh, you can leave the store very quickly if if you're – if you have a limited number of items, if you actually have a uh, a huge uh, list of groceries, uh, 55 items and up, then you'll appreciate some assistance for sure. <laughs> yeah, but you, I mean, you're talking so 50-50, basically the even split. That's the that's the finish line prior yeah. to the pandemic. What were but those numbers looking like? The younger generations, millennials and Gen Gen Zs. They're the ones really prioritizing self-checkouts, no matter what. They really would prefer uh, self-checkout lanes over uh, cashiers anytime, no matter how many items. 
They do not care. They want basically do their own thing on their own as they exit the uh, the store. Isn't that a little ironic? Because wouldn't most of the cashiers at grocery stores be in those age groups? The jobs that are lost? <laughs> actually, it depends. Well, yeah, you're right. Some of them are, but a lot of them are actually, you know, they've retired somewhere. They want uh, a, a, they want more income. Uh, they just want extra income or... Or maybe someone actually has stayed home to raise their children, and then they want to go back to work. These these jobs are are quite accessible. So you you have a variety of different people. But you're right. A lot of people who are younger, uh, especially with the Gen Zs, a lot of them actually occupy these roles. And, and again, before the before the pandemic kicked in. What were the percentages, or do we know who were in favor or not in favor of this? How much has this changed? Because we know now that it's like 50-50 or more. Where did we start? Well, there was a strong correlation between age and, uh, and, and, and the will to use cashiers. Uh, only 15% of boomers actually wanted to, uh, to use a, uh, a self-checkout lane over a cashier. Uh, with uh, with the Gen X's in the middle, uh, it was uh, over 35 percent. With the millennials, it was over 42 percent. But uh, right with our survey that we've conducted recently, we basically asked people, uh, if, given the chance, would you actually consider a self checkout lane? And now it, now it's over 60 percent. Uh, across the board, so it's pretty. These percentages are pretty high, and there there is anecdotal evidence that uh, more grocers are actually installing more self checkout lanes. In fact, there's been a couple of uh, inc- incidences where grocers took them out before the pandemic, and now they're putting them back in, just to basically because people know that uh, well, if they are available, they'll consider them. And is this really, I mean, it seems like a logical leap, but we, you know, logic doesn't, obvious doesn't always mean right. Is this because of the pandemic entirely? People just don't want those cashiers touching their lettuce and because of the the virus. And so I'd rather do it myself. There, there was a bit of an evolution. I, I think self-checkout lanes weren't going to disappear. Uh, you see, back in the eighties, we had the, the express lanes, uh, and of course, that came with some criticism. And then after that, of course, we had the self-checkout lanes. And the technology is actually even better. I don't know about you, Scott, but every time I went to a self-checkout lane, there was a, there was always there was always a problem. And uh, and you felt like the the biggest idiot when you actually needed assistance. It's getting better. Technology is getting better. Banks actually figured technology out a long time ago with ATMs, you go to a bank and rarely ATMs now will give you any grief. Self-checkout lanes, they, it took a long time before they actually start to get better. Now they are starting to get better. Uh, but I think the next frontier is going to be a stopless exit. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Sylvain, one of the things you said, and I think it's so important in this, so many people when this first came in said, I will never do this because I believe in jobs, I believe in people, I'm not going to support something that kills jobs. 
The tricky part here is that we also like to not spend more money than we have to. And if you have workers, workers cost money, especially as salaries and wages go up and minimum wage goes up, but that means higher cost, which means higher cost for your food. So the average person now looks at this and maybe, I don't know if they're thinking this, but thinks I can either have that person or I can have cheaper food. And which way are they going to go? Oh, exactly. Costs uh, are going to be everything. In fact, there's a big debate right now going on around hygiene theater. Uh, So as you walk into a grocery store, everything is being cleaned all the time. Uh, At the cashier, of course, you'll have someone cleaning cleaning, uh, the self-checkout counter, or they'll clean the counter if you're using a cashier. I mean, uh, because of the science we have now related to the virus, we know that some of the cleaning is now excessive. And so I suspect that grocers are going to try to bring down costs, labor costs. So be ready for that. Same for cashiers. Uh, Cashiers, well, sometimes they don't show up for work. Sometimes they get sick. Uh, most, Most of them, if not all of them, don't earn a decent wage. A lot of people are asking grocers to pay them a decent wage. Well, the only way to do it is to have fewer of them, really. Or, or to raise prices. It. Yeah. Or to raise prices. Exactly, or raise prices. Uh, but, of course, if you raise prices, it will compromise the food security of a, of, of a lot of people. So there's a balance that needs to be achieved here. What, what I think is going on, really, is that grocers, for the, really for the first time, they're starting to embrace technology at retail, and that's going to change our experience as consumers. Well, you said just before the break about something that this is probably, in your estimation, not the final step. So right now, we've gone from having the grocers. I mean, think back to 1950s when you had a a, a checkout person and a person in a nice suit bagging everything for you and then walking it out to your car. That's long gone. And then we got rid of the cashiers, basically. I know. And now we got rid of the cashiers, basically. (laughs) Well, did you? you? That's what you did once upon a time? Well, when I, in my hometown, of course, on weekends, I actually bagged groceries and, and bring bags to people's uh, cars, and it, it was it paid a lot because you got a lot of tips. There you go. Well, those are gone, and now the ch- cashiers are fading out, but you're saying that the cashless or the, or the self-checkout isn't the end of it because maybe we're going to have a day where you just, your buggy will what? Your buggy will read what's in there, and you just roll it out to the car, and it automatically goes on your account? Yeah, it's happening right now in Oakville. Uh, Stobies is actually running a pilot called, called a smart card. As you, as you put in stuff in your card, it actually tallies up your bill, and as you exit the store, the card will actually charge your gre- credit card automatically. You won't have to talk to anyone. You won't have to speak to anyone at all. Uh, it's incredible. It's done automatically. The Amazon Go model, of course, is... Uh, is uh, is a store with uh, over two million sensors, and it will actually measure everything you do. And as you pick up something from a shelf, it will charge your credit card as well. So there are different models out there, uh, but I think at some point uh, I, I, I do see the day when we won't have to talk, see anyone as we grocery shop. Yeah, because why would you ever want to deal with another human being? That's just so old-fashioned. <laughs> Um, but, but human beings, Scott. yeah, I know. But do, I mean, do you expect though, that the cashier will at some point be completely gone or will there still be some ca- a cashier or two for the dinosaurs that still like the idea of having that? 
In my view, we'll need human beings to run a grocery store, obviously, uh, but we'll probably need fewer of them. Uh, and the humans working in a grocery store will probably be uh, more educated. They'll be data-driven uh, to make our experience much more customized, uh, appropriate. You know, there are things that do impact our grocery shopping, like the weather, for example. I'm sure most people will relate to this. If you go to a grocery store and it's pouring rain, you won't be in the mood for a barbecue. But if it's sunny out and you go into a grocery store, your, your first stop is probably going to be the meat counter. Hmm. And so in order to manage all that, you need human beings who understand data, uh, data analytics, predictive analytics. That's going to be the focus in the future. And you can't really run a model that's dependent on labor, human labor, uh, uh, humans that will actually repeat the same action over and over again. It gets boring after a while at the cashier. Hmm. If you've never done it, it's pretty boring. I just can't wait till the Harvard and Princeton Masters of Business PhD folks are running our grocery stores just to separate me from my money more. That's uh, that's all I need is to find w- more ways to make me spend money. Yeah, it's, uh, it's coming. Absolutely. <laughs> Sylvain Charlebois, we always appreciate the time. Thanks for taking a few minutes tonight. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let us bring in Don Robertson, who is the owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys and of ComChoice Realty and a variety of other things who normally is with us on Mondays, but because we had no show yesterday because of Victoria Day, uh, he is with us, but not for the full hour today because Don's contract stipulates he must be free to watch all Leaf games. And so we are letting him go before the game starts, but thank you for doing a few minutes tonight. Oh, Scott, I'm looking forward to it. You say that with absolute sincerity. I'll take it. I'll take it because, you know, not no, everyone is that sincere. I am. Everybody's going to find out. You, I can I, I can spit out all the smart things I know in far less than an hour. You'll see that shortly. Or not. Yeah, one I, or the other. I, I went to a meeting. I, well, we had a meeting at work one time and someone couldn't be there and they had to go to a second version of it the next day. And they said, how was it? And I said, oh, it was 15 minutes of excellent material crammed into three hours. So we will try to do the 15-minute part rather than the three-hour part tonight. Um, All right. Don, the, everyone's been watching this series. I mean, the, the TV ratings have been great, as everyone knew they would be. And so everyone is in a playoff mindset right now. And they, they, they've been watching the game and realizing, and this is, I mean, we all knew this anyway, but how different playoff hockey is from regular season hockey. So I don't really want to talk about the play because we know that was going to happen. What's different also though, is the officiating seems to be different that, you know, because the players have ratcheted up the intensity, the refs don't call everything because that would mean probably they'd be sending everybody to the box every minute. Is that a good thing? Is that a good thing that the officiating and the way the game is played is allowed to change in the playoffs? Well, I, I think it is. I think everything has to adjust, right? The intensity level, um, block shots, hits. I mean, the magnifying glass on all those things goes up exponentially. So the officials have to respond. And Billy McCreary is the uh, supervisor of uh, this series for the NHL, a veteran guy from Guelph. And so the teams won't be uninformed 
as to what the expectation should be. And I don't think the NHL consult the teams, but they certainly inform them. So there would, there would be an ex- expectation um, from both coaches as to what's going to happen and how they plan on calling it. And they may do things like saying, look, at, we're going to crack down on the scoring chances. Like if you're going to interfere with guys, you you know if you're going to hit, that's one thing. But if the smallest of hook, if it takes away a scoring chance, we call it pretty tight. We're going to continue to call it tight, maybe tighter. We may give you a bit more latitude in the hitting department, and you know a bit of a later hit, and let that go. But we're going to be consistent and do it all through. So generally, there are conversations with the coaches and general managers on both sides, so nobody's aghast. Now the fans are. Sometimes the broadcasters are, but if you watch the benches, and I have, there doesn't seem to be anybody that's flipping out, right? I mean, they seem to be accepting it because they're aware of it, and but, yeah, it is and a big the re- difference. But the reason I ask is this, and look, I, I, I'm not necessarily complaining. I love playoff hockey. I love the intensity, and I love a lot of the stuff about it. The reason I ask, though, is this doesn't happen in baseball that you don't suddenly see a smaller strike zone or a bigger strike zone or the bases be stretched to 95 feet or, you know, it doesn't happen in football where the penalties are not called or basketball even. Hockey is the only sport of the big sports that seems to have a different set of rules when the playoffs come along. And I wonder why that is. I mean, I, I can guess how it came around. It just sort of morphed that way over time because that's what happened. But Nobody else does this. Well, uh, I mean, if you want to use baseball, which is, I think is where you started, when a guy's throwing a fastball, it doesn't go from 85 to 115 in the playoffs, right? So the this human nature of the game remains very consistent. Hockey doesn't. Hockey, as I've said a million times, is the fastest game in the world, and there are reports that hockey hits versus football hits are far more intense and bigger. So in fairness, the, you take the fastest game in the world, that includes body contact, and then you amp it up. Tell me another sport where that happens. It doesn't happen in basketball. I mean, they don't, they don't hit harder. They don't play, you know, it gets a little more physical. Baseball doesn't. Football still, I mean, it's, it's a bit physical in the trenches, but it, they don't hit a lot harder. Hockey, they do. And it's a different game. So the comparison is, you know, it's difficult to make. It may be unfounded because of the intensity and the speed. Yeah, and those who would criticize, and again, I'm, I'm not, but those who would criticize would say, well, look, um, if the goal is to build a skillful team, and then once the playoffs come along, you can negate that skill through a lot more leeway that you're given to that the skillful teams that they're not going to win all the time. I mean, look, if you're an Oilers fan, I don't know that you've had a lot to complain about from that series. I, I mean, there wasn't a lot of stuff that was cheap shots. McDavid wasn't targeted or anything like that. But if, if, if you can now change the entire way the game is played and it's not called differently, you've basically got to build a regular season team and a playoff team or be one of those very lucky ones that finds the guys that can play both. Well, I think the Toronto Maple Leafs are a prime example of that. 
Last year, they weren't the same kind of team, and they repeated themselves two years in a row. Last year, they weren't the same kind of team as they are now. Matthews, Marner are still going to play big parts, but they also have, you know, they're, they're, they're more physical. Uh, Wayne Simmons has started on the wing with uh, McDavid the last two games. So there's some gamesmanship played, but I don't think it totally changes the game. It changes the intensity. And what has to happen is, and I've certainly noticed it, that that when you look at Austin Matthews this year versus two years ago in the playoffs, if he hit a guy three years ago, it was just by accident. You probably hit more people wandering through the grocery store with your cart than he did three <laughs> years ago. And now he's a big man, and he takes it, and he knocks people down. He's hard to hit. So when you're going to hit um, Austin Matthews, you're likely going to hurt yourself. So guys that take runs at him, and I can tell you this, when you go out and you start playing the body and you start hitting harder, I can tell you it takes a lot more energy to throw a hit than it does take one. And so I think the Leafs have a better balance. I don't think it's changed the game. It's changed the intensity. Like you don't see, um, talking about hitting somebody by accident, uh, we, we Willie Nylander, I mean, he doesn't even bump into anybody at the bench. But he's scoring, so it hasn't affected his game. I mean, I, yeah. if I was coaching against him, I'd slash him and run him. But he's, <laughs> he's, he's pretty he's pretty evasive. Like he's not what? getting near anybody, but he's scoring goals. And if he's scoring goals, that's what they got him for. That's what they got him for. Let me switch up a little bit here. Um, another thing about hockey, we learned in the last 24, 48 hours. We, we, first of all, we know that the American Broadcasting, uh, ESPN, TNT are both getting back into the NHL next year. They are now, which is which I think is good for the league. Um, th- they're getting back into it. And we learned in the last 48 hours that Wayne Gretzky has signed on to be TNT's lead analyst. And Don, uh, you know, the natural, the obvious thing would be the greatest player of all time is going to be the lead analyst. That's a great hire. And I've, I never say anything bad about Wayne Gretzky because what he did as a hockey player, not just on the ice, but also as a guy growing the game. I mean, he 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 gets a pass on almost anything. But is this a good hire? Because it strikes me that Wayne Gretzky as a personality, he's no Charles Barkley. He's not a Shaquille O'Neal like you see on the NBA shows. Is he a guy that will work as a TV analyst? Uh, I guess we're going to find out. I don't know. I'm like you. I don't want to say anything bad about Gresky, but he's no, no Kevin Bieska. I can guarantee you that. Um, I may have mangled his name there, but, you know, the the, the kid that's doing the um, the, the stuff yeah. now from California on, on Hockey Night in Canada, I mean, he's Kevin Bieska from Grimsby. I, yep. Uh, yeah. And I don't <laughs> – should have been a real McCoy. Just the mileage was a bit <laughs> – when he was coming from California. But – I don't know if Bretsky will say anything. I mean, I saw 25 years ago um, Gordie Howe speak at a Tim Hortons golf tournament uh, that Wayne Abbott held. And, boy, he was a better player than he was a speaker. And and I've talked to different guys about that. And, you know, he, he was not – he's not Jim Ralph. He's not Dennis Hull. You know what I mean? He was just a really good hockey player. And sometimes you got to stay in your lane. And I don't know if uh, Gretzky's out of his lane. I'll tell you what will make it. If they partner him up with the right people that can tee it up for him. Um, but I don't know what Wayne Gretzky's personality like. And I don't, 
is like, and I don't know if a lot of people do. I, I do see he uh, stepped down as um, assistant chairman of the board of the Oilers today, which that timing is remarkably unique. But I guess well, he had no. He has to. Come. He has to to do the TV thing. You can't be working for a team and also commentating on them. I mean, that would be ridiculous. But I, I just like as I say, in, in, Wayne Gretzky as a hockey player, uh, unparalleled. Wayne Gretzky as a as a, dip, a diplomat. That's not the word I'm looking for exactly, but you know what I'm saying. Um, unparalleled. Yeah. Wayne Gretzky to me as a speaker. He, he's always been so diplomatic that he's never said anything that would rock the boat except once upon a time saying the Jer- New Jersey Devils were a Mickey Mouse organization after the Oilers beat them like 10 to 1 or something. That's the most outrageous thing that Wayne Gretzky ever says. And he hasn't said and, anything outrageous since then. And, no. And, and, you'll, and you'll have to see. I don't know if that's – but he's going to – you know, apparently he's going to get paid $3 million a year. So you better say something. So – it's yeah. You better not sit there and go. Yeah, you know what? All the teams tried hard, and you know, every once in a while they have a bad game, and you know, it didn't work out well for them. And that's going to last does, about fifteen minutes. Yeah. Does anybody really want to listen to Wayne Gretzky explain to the American audience what offside is? I mean, honestly, that like that's it, you'll be bored out of your mind. I, as I say, I'm not dumping on Gretzky by any stretch. It's a, this is a hard discussion to have because I, you know, I have such high regard, but I just. Of all the people with personality that would make TV go, I just would never have thought Wayne Gretzky is one of those guys. I, I just and I can't see him flicking a switch and suddenly turning into someone who's going to say something controversial or that's going to get some attention. I can't see him becoming, you know, I, I just can't imagine Don that we're ever going to be watching Twitter or reading the news or looking online and hearing reports saying Wayne Gretzky said this. And all of a sudden we go, really? What? What did he say about him? We're never going to see that. That's just not him. Well, <clears throat> I was fortunate enough to be a linesman when Wayne Gretzky's junior B team played the Stratford Cullitons in the 70s. And everybody went on and on and on about him. And uh, Jimmy Burton was the referee, and both of them from Brantford. And after the game, I said, and they think he's going to play in the NHL. So you know what? What might, because he was a little scrawny little kid, who was very skilled, but that's back when you had, you know, you had to be pretty tough to play the game. You had to be pretty big. So I will never second guess what Wayne Gretzky can do because I didn't think he was going to be big enough. I didn't care how skilled he was. I thought somebody would clobber him and that would be the end of him. And it turned out okay for him. So I'm not going to discount him now, but you're right. Based on um, past history and watching him speak, and always being politically correct and always saying the right thing, that's not all that entertaining unless they can build him with the right characters around him, whether that's um, Jeremy Roenick. And so the supporting cast may make a big difference. And I don't know how quick he is. I don't know how funny he is. He might be hilarious. I've been around him a couple times, but I don't know. I can't make an assessment. And he's going to be on TV. But for three million bucks a year, he better be doing something funny. Let's put it, let's be very honest here, Don, for a second. We've, we've been watching the Hockey Night in Canada now for a year or two since Don Cherry got let go. Uh, you know, Kevin BX is a good guy. I'm sure Kelly Rudy is a good guy. I'm our friend, uh, Derek Wills, who used to do the Hamilton Bulldogs play by play works with Kelly raves about Kelly Rudy as a good guy. I, I, you know, I trust Derek's word. Um, the people on there seem like they're all good people. But re- compared to the days when Don Cherry was on doing first period intermissions, 
the first period intermission now, does it, does it on a one to 10 scale of entertainment? Like, what is it? I, I, there are moments when it can be interesting and entertaining, but it's when you had cherry, where you had someone who was, who you always expected was going to say something outlandish. It's so different from now when, you know, BXA, you're right. We'll say something now and again, but it's not remotely the same. It's not remotely the same. Well, first of all, it's all very politically correct now. I mean, it's the polar opposite of uh, what Grapes was. But, you know, it's very politically correct. You can see, you know, who's on the broadcast and everything else. And I, I don't know if you follow me on Twitter. I have three followers, but I, and I seldom tweet. But I tweeted last night, and what I said was, I can remember when people used to go to the fridge or get something before the end of the first period so they could watch Coach's Corner. And now, in my observations, people wait till the end of the first period and go to the kitchen and grab themselves another beer or a glass of wine or a bag of chips because that isn't the same. I remember... Uh, being in uh, Maple Leaf Gardens in the playoffs back in, in the 90s. And when grapes come on, and I'm sure you've seen it, the press box, everybody stopped and watched the monitors because they had to know what Don Cherry was going to do. Now, he was entertaining. So from an entertainment perspective, I would say Donald S. Cherry was a nine. I would say the first period now because they split it up so much. They want everybody's got a scripted opinion it, the entertainment value is about a three. They're not, yeah. I see. I don't think it's bad. I don't think it's bad. It's just not comparable. It's like you had one where it was must see TV, and one where it's like, well, it's watchable, and you might learn something, and it's pretty good, but it doesn't, in my mind, compare. And this is not talking about whether you like Don Cherry or not. We're simply talking about the must see element of it. And going back, I just can't, for the life of me, imagine that Wayne Gretzky is going to be not imitating Don Cherry. I don't want him to do that. That's That would be so phony if he tried to do something like that. You'd never believe it. But I just can't see Wayne Gretzky being a guy that is going to move people to say, I must be in front of the... They will for the first time. They will to see how he does the first or second time. But I just can't see him being the guy that you have to be in front of your TV to see what he has to say. Which, well, you know... Just to recap, the, when I rated grapes and everything, I said entertainment-wise. I didn't say knowledge-wise, but, but no, nope. you're right. Your term, much-watched TV is important. And when you say, I don't know who's going to be entertained by Wayne Gretzky, I think the bigger question is who's going to be watching. Like They're, they're probably making that $3 million investment based on they need ratings and they need them now. Sure, and he's got the name. But He's yeah, got the is name. he going to be? Is he going to be must-watch TV again? I'm going to go back to that Junior B game. I was a linesman. I got thinking. I don't care how good they think this kid is. He can't play in the NHL that size. He's just not big enough. He's skilled enough. He's not big enough. So what I think of how Wayne Gretzky will do, based on my first assessment, boy, don't take my opinion to the bank. But again, if they surround them with the right people, you know, someone brilliant like yourself, and maybe a yeah. Jeremy Roenick. No, but I'm I'm serious. I mean, you're, you you interview very well. I mean, you need somebody that can put him in, the, in a position to succeed, which is what yeah, he did with have, a lot of his line mates. But if you have someone on there with him who's a huge personality, I think he gets buried. 
I think he gets lost in the shuffle. And so here's the problem with this. And and the thing that would make Wayne Gretzky so phenomenal as an analyst is why he won't be good, I don't think, or great as an analyst. Because what he did on the ice, I don't think he can explain. I don't think Wayne Gretzky could tell you in words how he did some of the things that he did. He just did them because they came instinctively to him because he had a gift. And, you know, there are people who do stuff. And if you say, how'd you do that? They go, "Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, uh, do you think that Beethoven would have been a great piano teacher? He would have gone insane, more insane, because the person that he was trying to teach could not work on the same wavelength as him because he was operating at at a... at a level that is unique to that person. And I don't think Wayne Gretzky can explain most of the things that he did on the ice or why he did it. And then when they turn to him and say, Wayne, what would you have done? Well, you see, he, he ran into that exact problem, Scott, in Phoenix. Yes. When he was coaching and he guys would come off the bench. And I know this for a fact. And he'd say, why didn't you just stop and do this? And apparently the guys would just look at him and said, because I never thought of it until you just said it. Yeah, exactly. he could, because he couldn't relate. He's going, why don't you just do this? Well, mostly because you're the only human being on the planet that thinks <laughs> like that. That's right. So and he, I re- you can't teach greatness. I've got to let you go. But I remember years ago, he was in an all-star game. And it was the, the game didn't matter. But it was the skills show the, the night before. And it was a puck skating relay. And all the other players were skating around the pylons with the puck. And I always remember the fact that Gretzky figured out that if you leave the puck on the other side of the pylon and you skate around, it's way faster than having to drag the puck. And he's not the fastest skater, but he would win every race by like a second because he did something that that nobody else had thought of. And that was the entirety of his game. And I just, I don't know how, look, maybe they did a test run with him and maybe... He has, something has clicked because he's Wayne Gretzky. I mean, you know, it's hockey. Maybe we're underestimating for the first time, not the first time. And maybe something has clicked and he now can explain this stuff. But uh, if it's just Wayne Gretzky talking about offsides or, you know, you got to dump it in, oh, you got to play tough. I mean, like, you know, he'll have the name and people might tune in once or twice, but we'll see. Anyway, I, I hope he does well. I mean, I really do. I hope, I hope I'm eating my words in six months or eight months and everyone says he is the best analyst out there like you as a player. That would be fantastic. I'd love it if I was wrong. Well, you know what? Here's the difference between Canadian and U.S. TV, and I know you got to go. Sportsnet aren't paying anybody three million, three million bucks a year to do that. They don't have to pay Wayne Gretzky. They don't have to pay him because they don't need the ratings. They've got people watching. The States needs to have a name. That's... That's ex- and that might be the key, and that might be the best investment they've ever got. And we'll see how he does. I hope well. You know, it'd be interesting because I'm sure there are some other guys who have not not quite as big. See, one of the guys, and we do have to run, but uh, Paul Bissonette, the guy who does Spit and Chicklets, the podcast, uh, yeah. who has turned his personality, was well, not a great player, but has turned his personality into a huge business. That guy, now I don't know, I didn't see if they've, if anyone signed him, he'd be ideal. He'd be perfect. Doesn't have the name recognition, but you sit him beside Gretzky, and then in three episodes, you move Gretzky out and just say, "Okay, Paul, it's your show now. We got the people in. Now it's your show." We'll see. Kevin, we'll B- see. I hope Kevin I'm wrong. Biesca. Kevin Biesca, you didn't bring him in for his name, anyways. No, nope. have a good show. 
Don Robertson, we'll let you go and watch the game. Uh, appreciate the time, as always. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. Bye now. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.